0: Thank you so much. Turn. Let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 46. The 46 Psalm, and we've already had some great scriptures this morning. Uh, the call to worship, Psalm 6. Uh, so this is another great, another great portion of scripture. We're going to read the whole Psalm this morning, and um, so look with me at Psalm 46. This is God's word. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God The God of Jacob is our fortress. Father, we now position ourselves to be addressed by you knowing your word. Father, brings to us your mind. It brings to us your will. It brings to us your very presence. So speak to us now, I pray, and Make your presence known among us, for where your word is, there you are. And so, Lord, we look expectantly to you, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, last summer, I had the joy of bringing my family with me to Germany, where I travel regularly to our sister church in Hamburg. Um, I have been there numerous times. I was finally able to bring my family with me and After teaching a course there at uh, they have a part time pastor 's college that we 've helped them begin there uh, after teaching a course there, we took some vacation time and Our first destination was Luther country and our first city that we went to was Wittenberg, the birthplace of the Reformation. Uh, It was there on the door of the castle church that Martin Luther nailed the famous 95 theses that sparked debate on certain practices in the Roman Catholic Church that would soon grow into a blaze that would transform Europe and ultimately spread around the world. Well, as we were there, we made our way, as soon as we got to Wittenberg, we made our way down that medieval street to that church... Uh, that, that stands at the end, of the, uh, the end of one of the main roads, and one immediately spots the tower of that church, almost 300 feet high. It stands out over the whole city, and circling the top of that tower, overlooking the city of Wittenberg, w- are these words Ein Festeburg ist unser Gott. You may not know German. A mighty fortress is our God. The opening line to Luther's most famous hymn, uh, the hymn often called the Battle Hymn of the Reformation. It's just glorious to see that. Well, one, make your way down the street, back down the street to the city square, and you find there in the city square a large monument to Martin Luther, a huge statue with plaques at the base of the statue on each side. And again, one of the plaques on the front contains those same words, Ein feste Burg ist unser Gott, a mighty fortress is our God. You see those words all over Wittenberg. Luther is everywhere in Wittenberg. But besides being one of the church's best-known hymns and uh, best-loved hymns, that hymn did not stay in the church. That hymn played an important role in German history. It was used by armies marching into battle. Uh, it, it's been incorporated by, by composers and famous works from Bach and Mendelssohn to, to Debussy and Vaughan Williams. Uh, that hymn was sung at the funeral of President Dwight Eisenhower. That hymn even made an appearance in The Simpsons. <laughs> there, there's actually a sad irony in, in all of that. Those, those powerful words tower over Wittenberg. They have rung out, run out throughout church history, but their meaning is often overlooked and their significance is... Often dismissed. That hymn was inspired by and based upon this psalm that we just read, Psalm 46. And like Einfester Borg, like A Mighty Fortress, this psalm is meant to be more than just words on a page. It's meant to be more than lyrics in a hymn. It's meant to be more than engravings on a monument. This psalm contains bracing strengthening truth about God, particularly about God and his posture toward his people. And perhaps you noticed as we read, the backdrop of this psalm is relevant for every believer in this room because every one of us has encountered or will encounter circumstances that shake us, what the writer calls trouble. And that's the background here. Trouble. And and not just inconvenience or hassle or irritation, but earth-shaking, life-threatening trouble. And and to people facing such trouble, to people frightened by trouble, this psalm delivers to us authoritative, uh, perspective-altering, circumstance-interpreting truth. And, And like... I love this psalm. Like Luther himself, if you know about Martin Luther, and like this, the great hymn that he wrote, this is a rugged psalm. This is a robust psalm. This is a defiant psalm. You know, some psalms come tenderly to you, don't they? They they come and they speak tenderly. They come alongside like a friend and soothe us. That's not this psalm. This psalm stares your trouble. It looks your trouble in the face. It stares down calamity, and it It exhorts us, the people of God, to a radical confidence in God regardless of what life brings us. And that's really the thrust of the psalm. That's the theme of the psalm. And that's the message I believe God wants this psalm to deliver to us this morning, if I, if I was to sum up what I thought the message of the psalm was, here is what I think God wants us to know this morning, to lay hold of again. Here's how I'd put it. In the midst of any threat, in the midst of any threat, God's protective presence makes His people secure. In the midst of any threat, God's protective presence makes His people secure. Whatever you may be facing today... Uh, There is no scenario that this psalm doesn't apply to. There's no special circumstances outside of this psalm's field of vision. To every one of us this morning, this psalm comes to us like a strong, wise friend. Uh, You know, unfazed by our troubles, undaunted by our circumstances. And it speaks faith and courage and comfort to our souls. Through this psalm, God wants to speak faith. Encourage and, and comfort to our souls. So l- let's, let's open our heart to the strong, wise friend and receive God's care through this psalm, all right? Now, as we, as we look at the psalm, we, we can see three aspects of God's care for us in trouble and in life. And I'll, I'll just mention them up front. They're just very simple. We're going to see this. God's protection, God's presence... And then a pronouncement, God's pronouncement. So that's how we're going to proceed this morning. So let's begin, number one, first, God's protection. God's protection. Look with me at verse one again. God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Now, I want you to notice the very first word of the psalm. What is it? God. It's not I. (laughs) It's not we. Uh, There's no opening plea. It's a help me. Uh, there, there's no r- review of my circumstances. Right out of the gate, the psalmist rivets our attention upon God. Just like that band around the tower in Wittenberg, the writer raises a banner over this psalm. He really raises a banner over the life of the people of, of God. B- before any examination uh, of circumstance, before any plea for help, there is this great confession. God is our refuge and strength. He just is. Whether you feel it this morning, whether, you, whether you're holding on to it this morning, whether that seems some, yeah, something I know, but it's, it's getting a little faint to me, it doesn't matter. God is our refuge and strength. Isn't that good news? He just is. Um, and remember, this is a song. This is poetic. And so the images are meant to be mined for their meaning. So he begins, he begins with a metaphor. God is a refuge. It's, it's a word very prominent in book one of the Psalms. That's Psalm 1 to 41. And, and it's, it's a general term. It could be used of any shelter for protection. Um, a, a shelter for protection in life, a shelter for protection in battle. Maybe, I don't know, you've hiked through the woods in a driving rainstorm. And, you know, the temperature is like... Thirty six, uh, not 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 cold enough to snow, and it'd be nice, just cold enough to make it miserable. And you're you're trying to make it. You finally make it to a cabin, or you finally make it to a lean to, and you just get in. You shut the door. The wind stops. Instant. <sighs> That's a refuge, or or maybe. You, you could picture a, a Lord of the Rings type movie, a uh, battle, soldiers arrive, they're, they're, being, they're being pursued, they arrive in the castle, they shut the giant doors, they, they, they close that giant bar behind the doors to secure the castle. Deep breath. Instant safety. That's a refuge. That's what God is to us, a safe, secure place to hide. Not, not a truth that we have to courageously contend for and proclaim. Just a place to hide. A place to find safety from all danger. From, from all turmoil. From all threats. He's also, the psalmist writes, our strength. So we're not just protected, we're empowered. Empowered to Act. Given wisdom to decide. Infused with resolve. Maybe you need this just to to get out of bed. Just to take another step. When you're exhausted. Or you're discouraged. Or you're paralyzed with fear. So he's our protection. He's our supply. Okay? Now... We're paying close attention to the words because this is God's word. Lest we think that protection and grace is difficult to access. It's, I know it's there, it's true, I don't know how to get it. Or, or maybe it's reserved for, you know, the elite few, certain special Christians. You know, God does, act, God does respond, but really to, to when i am really got it together, to great acts of moral resolve or spiritual courage or, or, you know, heroic devotion. You know, if you're really godly, God will help you. If you really get it together, God will help you. No. Verse 1b, he is a very present help in trouble. More literally, I would translate that, a help in trouble, he is very surely found. That's how it reads. A help in trouble, he is very surely found. He's not a remote help. He's not a potential help. He's not a help if you can just find the secret or read the right book and he will help or say the right prayer and he will help, much less help yourself and he will help. No, the point is this. He is a help who is there when you need it. That's the thrust. So do you need it? (laughs) He's there. You'll find him. You will very surely find him. He is very present. He is abundantly available. And don't miss the specific context here. What does he say? God is a very present help in trouble. There's, a, there's an underlying truth, an underlying assumption the psalmist makes here that we shouldn't miss Trouble will come to the godly. The psalm assumes trouble. The whole Bible assumes trouble. It's in the very fabric of a fallen world. Christians are not exempt from it. Christians are not immune to it. And there's plenty of young folks here, you know, trouble, yeah, you know, my car's broken down before. Now, real trouble is going to come. As as one man said, just live long enough, you're going to suffer. It's true. Um... The psalm brings hope to it. It doesn't immunize us to it, but it brings hope to it. And, and even, I love this, even the particular word for trouble is very elusive. It, it suggests a sense of confinement, of being hemmed in. So no, no room to move, no space to maneuver, no seeming answer, no way out. That's, that's what he's talking about here. And in this context, then, it's, it's, it's any... Because we want to get the context right, right? It's any threatening situation where I don't have an answer. And I'm sure many in this room know that, that feeling. You know, I, I have no idea what I'm going to do. I'm trapped. Ever feel trapped? I see no hope in this situation. This is going sideways, and it's not going to stop. I just know it. Or, or, or maybe, you know, th- this situation is just broken, and there's glass all over the floor, and you don't get that back together. It's, brothers and sisters, it's especially in those situations desperate situations, that God is a very present help. He's very surely found. He's abundantly available to you and to me. And note something else. There's so much, there's just this great theological calculus packed into this psalm. The text doesn't say, God will help you. What does it say? God is a help. God's just not going like, to send a messenger to help you. He's not going to send a delegation to represent him. God himself will come to you with all his care and his compassion and his wisdom and his resources and his omnipotent strength. That's the theological banner over this psalm. That's the theological banner over the life of the people of God. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help. He himself is in trouble. I told you it was a strong, wise friend. Now, given that truth, given that banner, given that foundation to our lives, how, how does one respond to that? What, what effect is that meant to have on our souls? Well, that, that's what we see in verse 2. A conclusion is drawn. Some biblical logic here. Therefore, he says... We will not fear. Therefore, we will not fear. If if God is really this, it doesn't mean I'm immune to fear. It just means fear doesn't make sense. Fear in in all of its forms. Distress over something that that threatens us. Panic over something that will harm us or or rob us of something precious or, or, or valuable. Anxiety over a dreaded outcome or an uncertain outcome. Um, th- that fear has no place because God is there when those things threaten us. He helps us in that trouble. He ensures, listen, He ensures that nothing will destroy His good purposes for us. We may not know what those purposes are. They may not always make sense. But nothing will destroy His good purposes for us. You know, the world tells us a story in which fear makes sense. I mean, if we are just the result of a, of a random collocation of molecules, no, no purpose, no meaning, if we really are alone and vulnerable in this world, which is the, the natural entailment of a secular world, if that's true, then let's be fearful. Fear makes sense. Something's going to get me. Some could get me. That person could get me. Uh, But the Bible tells us another story. (laughs) The The Bible gives us a worldview in which fear doesn't make sense. The maker and sustainer and ruler of the universe is with us and guiding us and working out omnipotent and all wise purposes for us. Then fear... We may fall prey to fear, but it doesn't. It's it's not rational. And and I love this. This is no platitude for the writer. He imagines here worst case scenario. Look at his language. Four catastrophic scenarios in verses two to three. They're marked in the English by "for those." The word "though." Uh, if, look at it. Uh, Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. It's like an apocalyptic film, isn't it? Massive earthquakes that, that alter the very landscape. Uh, mountains sliding into the sea. Tsunamis or tidal waves then resulting. And, and the elements in, in the original, they're, they're really personified. They almost come alive. The waters roar and foam and swell. They're just roaring. But the psalmist stares that in the face and says, no, even if the whole fabric of the created world is is in danger of collapsing, even if the very foundations of earthly existence are shaken, even if the world comes crashing down, we will not fear. Even if, I don't care, fill in, even if, fill in the blank, it doesn't matter. We won't fear. Because nothing falls outside of the purview of God's protective presence with us. It's one thing to say, okay, you know, earth gives way. Yeah, meteorite comes, I'm not going to fear. It it doesn't take an earthquake or a tidal wave to make you feel that your world is crashing down, does it? Um, Imagine many of us could provide a ready illustration you know that, that that thing that's so precious in my life that if it were threatened fear oh, if it were if it were taken away just just panic I, there's certain things i just can't go there i hope i would remain a christian if that happened <laughs> that that's just my feeling i would because god holds me but I, you you know you know those things um, it's in those scenarios that this, that this text applies to. Um, nine months ago, July 23rd, um, our young church plant experienced a earth-giving way moment. Um, a young husband uh, to, to a lovely wife, uh, a father to three little girls, uh, wife pregnant with a boy, do any moment. Um couple had found our church. Uh, this couple loved our church. This couple was loved by our church. This man had just become a, a community group leader. Uh, early one Thursday morning, inexplicably in the country, T-boned by a pickup truck. Taken to heaven. utter shock went through our church you know those, those simulations of atomic bombs and you see the shock waves just kind of take out how I mean it was just that's what we felt just through our entire church just shock waves um and, and for his dear wife uh the life equivalent of mountains giving way mountains moved into the sea um but on that morning, as about 30 of us sat in the emergency room, um, and throughout these nine months, what have we seen? But I don't know what to call it. Otherworldly grace. Um, understanding surpassing peace. Unspeakable poise. Grief? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's a new kind of grief now, nine months down the road. It's different. Because it starts sinking in. Oh, he's not coming back. Yeah, grief, but I tell you, tear-stained joy. Uh, I've never in my life, I don't believe, seen God being a very present help so powerfully, so palpably. She gave, about three months ago, a testimony in our church. Her name is Rebecca. Um, it's on our, web- our church website, Sovereign Grace Church of Louisville. I-, I would encourage you to read it. It's so real. It's so real, but it's so God-glorifying. It's, a, it's an illustration of this text. And I'm sure many of you have your own illustration. Um, exhibit A in your life or your family of Psalm 46, 1 to 3. My friends, nothing can do us ultimate harm when we're safe in God's protected presence. Nothing. God Himself is abundantly available when trouble comes, when there's no way out. There is in Him and nowhere else security. Protection, strength, grace. Whatever, listen, whatever you fear, in Him you can face. Lay hold of that. In the midst of any threat, God's protective presence, His presence makes His people secure. Well, that's the first aspect of God's care, His protection. The second aspect of God's care in trouble, number two, God's presence. God's presence. What was implicit in the first part of the psalm becomes explicit here. Look with me at verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. So when you get to verse 4, there's a dramatic change in tone. We move from roaring seas and, and trembling mountains to, to a tranquil river and, and a glad city. We go from the destruction of oceans to, to the nourishment of streams. The whole, the whole picture moves from chaos to calm. And the one thing that makes a difference is the presence of God. And, and God's presence here, as you see, is introduced by vivid symbolism. There is, it just comes out of nowhere... The, the music in the background just changed from sort of clashing cymbals and minor keys to, I don't know, a flute just starts playing in a major key. There's a river whose streams make glad. <laughs> the city of Gates. Almost like, what? Did I, like, turn two pages? Um, no. It's meant to strike us that way. The language is reminiscent of paradise. Immediately, the river there, it calls to mind Eden, where... God provided a river to water the garden and the tree of life. In the great concluding vision of Ezekiel, he, he pictures a river flowing from the final future temple that, that flows and it gives life to all the earth. And it turns salt water fresh and just gives life to everything it touches. Um, so, so the river, what is it signifying? Well, it's signifying God's life-giving presence. And then the city reinforces that image. It probably refers to to Jerusalem where God chose, the Old Testament tells us He chose His name to dwell there. But I think it does so in an idealized way. So it's a picture of God present among His people, dwelling with Him in peace and protection. That, of course, becomes explicit. Look at verse 5. God, this explains verse 4, God is in the midst of her She shall not be moved. She shall not be moved. And then, look what happens again. It's like the camera zooms out again. And now, this this tranquil city is contrasted with images of, really, national turmoil and threat. So, here we go again. We just swing back to verse 6. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. So, we've got a conflict, don't we? We've got this... We've got a picture of ultimate realities, but there's no contest. We're shown what happens when human pride and national ambition and political power come up against the presence of God. Verse 6b, he utters his voice, the earth melts. That's what he thinks about all these powerful nations and terrorist groups, and secular authorities. He utters his voice, the earth melts. That's what he thinks about them. You see what the psalmist is doing? We started with this threat and terror in verses 1 to 3. Well, now what the psalmist is doing is stepping back to give us the fuller picture, the deeper reality God doesn't just arrive at the last minute when trouble comes. He's with us in that trouble. And that trouble is no match for his sovereign power and his omnipotent word. There's actually a subtle wordplay that underlines this. Look at verse 3. You see where it says, the waters roar? You see that? The waters roar. Then verse 6, the nations rage. That's the same word in the original. So what's happening? Well, fallen creation and rebellious nations are both raging against God. They rage, they rail, they conspire against God and his purposes. But then God speaks. They're roaring and then God literally gives his voice. And the whole troubled, groaning earth, national ambition, it just melts like wax before him. So in addition to personal trouble that we saw in verses 1 to 3, these verses picture national trouble. Trouble not just for the individual, but for us, for the people of God. And if you've not been Rip Van Winkle, you know in recent years the velocity of trouble in our nation, it's just accelerated. Um, the culture seems to, to rage against the church, to, to rage against God's people, to rage against God's truth. I mean, there's not just disagreement. There's aggression. Um, defend human life against abortion. You're not just a person with a different political view. You're, a, you're, you're, a, you're an extremist. Reject our culture's redefinition of marriage. You're a bigot. And even that is nothing compared to Christians losing their lives in other countries. So, Psalm 46 speaks to that kind of trouble as well. Don't be deceived by headlines or pundits or, or cultural thought leaders. The psalmist cuts through the noise and he exposes the reality. God is in the midst of His people. We don't have to... You know, we don't have to huddle and tremble and shake. God is in the midst of His people. She shall not be moved, but not because of her strength, not because of her merit, not because of her wisdom, not because of her machinations. She won't be moved because God will help her. And look at when He'll help. He will help her. You see that phrase? When morning dawns. Literally, He will help her at the turning of the morning. What does that mean? Well, the original reader would immediately recognize that phrase. It comes straight from Exodus 14, 27, the very moment when Moses caused the Red Sea to come crashing down on the Egyptians who were in the midst of the sea. Exodus 14, 27 says that happened at the turning of the morning. So it's like Israel, do you remember like the key moment in your history when you were at the great, you were at threat of genocidal extinction and God came at that moment? Well, that's what God's going to do again. At the very moment you need Him, He's there like the waters crashing down on Pharaoh's armies. And it happens because God is with us. That's. How the section concludes. It, it, remember, this is a song. The song has a chorus. The song has a refrain. It rings out in verse 7, and it rings out again in verse 11. Look with me in verse 7. Here's the chorus The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The refrain crystallizes the story that's told in these verses. The Lord of hosts is with us. Look carefully. You see, the Lord, it's L O R D, all caps. That It's not God is with us. That's That Lord there is Yahweh. That's the, the covenant name of God given to Moses. The name that distinguishes God as Israel's God. God over the universe as our God. The personal God who pledges himself to his people and binds his people to him. That's the God who does this. And, and then that's combined with this little phrase... So it's Yahweh of hosts, armies, massed forces, heavenly legions. It's quite a phrase. It's this combination of personal intimacy and unlimited power. This personal father, God, who's a matchless warrior, king. That's quite a combination. And that's reinforced by the next phrase, the God of Jacob, personal God of Jacob, who is, what? Our fortress. Oh, this is a different word than the word refuge earlier. Fortress. This is a stronghold, uh, uh, literally an inaccessibly high place. So what is the picture? The picture is of God swooping us up and setting us on high, removed from danger, removed from exposure. So that's the chorus for our lives. God himself is our fortress, our security. This this powerful God with infinite resources at his disposal is present with you. Never a moment when you're out of his sight, never a moment when you're out of his hand. So you got trouble, you you won't be moved. Your cause won't be abandoned. The Lord of hosts is with us. You're safe with him. He's got this. Whatever the this is, he's got this. He's got it. Well, we've seen God's protection, God's presence. Now now we hear something. Now we hear something. So number three, God's pronouncement. For the first time in the psalm, we see commands, imperatives, uh, four in all. The first two are in the psalmist's voice. And they come as an invitation. Look at verse 8. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters The spear. So, this is really this is an invitation for us to to reflect on God's past actions as a pointer to His future actions. Think about your history, Israel. Think about your history, Grace Church. He's giving us a vision of things to come based on things in the past. What, what is true about Israel? And, and their, their point of reference preeminently was their deliverance from Egypt. So what is true about God that's part of your history and it will be part of your future? God acts to deliver and preserve His people. That's what He does. That's who He is. Look at verse 9. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks bows. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. It's what He does. So, don't be deceived. God is not passive in history. God is not passive in your life. He's moving history to its final goal. And what we see here, it's not some mamby-pamby peace through negotiation. Peace through compromise, it's peace through triumph. That's our God. He's not going to lose. So to the wicked who would exalt themselves, who would presume to oppose or ignore God, and to the righteous who who are tempted to fear, the psalmist invites us on the one hand, look up from your ambitions, you proud. And look up from your fear, you timid, you battered. And consider God. That's what He's asking us to do. Consider God, consider what He's done to save and preserve His people. Consider His ways. consider His purposes, will triumph, all opposition, all trouble. It's going to be vanquished. Then suddenly and unannounced, God speaks. The heavenly voice that was referred to in verse 6 that melts the nations like wax, well, that heavenly voice breaks in in verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted upon the earth. So if the first two imperatives were an invitation, these next two are a challenge. So remember the context. In light of all that's preceded, God's protection of his people, God's presence with his people, God's, God's unrivaled power and sovereignty, God's certain and, 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 and ultimate victory over all evil and rebellion and, and ambition and pride and personal autonomy, two challenges follow. First, be still. Now, there's a few Hebrew words that can be translated, be still. But this one is special. It's not a call to quiet meditation. Or it's not a gentle reminder to to trust God. This is a strong injunction. Be still. Stop. Cease and desist. Is a decent translation. Yield. Abandon your course. One One translation reads this way. And end to your fighting. (laughs) I never read it that way. Uh, And so to sinful, self-satisfied humanity, God commands, desist stop your attempts to triumph and oppress and rule abandon your project of living life apart from god and his purposes stop it so if in your home maybe your guest bath you have a little frame with psalm 46:10 for your get- now, you might want to just take it out put in psalm 23 this is getting in people's faces. S- be still. And the second command is know that I am God. Recognize me for who I am, the sovereign one who rules all things and is working all things for my good and perfect and wise and ultimate purposes. Now, the commands are addressed first to sinful humanity in the context. And they apply to every person who lives independently of God. And so, I I don't know. I I don't know who's here. If if you're here and you're not a believer, or maybe people think you're a believer, but you kind of know you're not. um, This is addressed first to you. And it was addressed to all of us before we became Christians. Um, the, the, The Old Testament here speaks of God's acts to judge the wicked and save his people. And all of those acts point to God's greatest act in sending His Son, Jesus Christ. The the very purpose for which Jesus came was to deal with this. It was to deal with rebellion against God. Scripture is clear. Every person has turned away from God. Every person has gone their own way. Every person has denied God's authority. Every person has rejected God's love. Every person has renounced and stiff-armed God's rule. Every person takes their, their place in this picture of rage against God. That's every one of us outside of Christ. We're all raging. But but in case you're not a believer, you can today respond to this command. Be still. I think a New Testament equivalent of that term would be repent. Turn from ruling your life. Turn from living your life as if God didn't exist. Stop disbelieving Jesus. Stop pursuing things that offend Him and poison you. And secondly, no. Know that He is God. Acknowledge Him as God. Receive His Son, Jesus Christ, as your Savior, the one who died in your place for your sin. You can be forgiven today. Isn't that incredible news? You can move from raging against God to receiving Him, His protective presence as your Father, as your God, as your Comforter. All the promises of this psalm can be yours today forever. Oh my, that's just, I want to get saved all over again. But the commands also speak to most of us in this room, I'm sure, God's people. And so to the restless heart, God would say, be still. Stop living like you don't know me. Uh, cease your striving to solve your problems. Cease your striving to outmaneuver your circumstances. Do you know that feeling—to to control your life, to find peace and refuge in yourself or in your circumstances or anywhere else, but God and all He promises to be for you in Christ. Just stop. And secondly, no. No. Remember, lay hold of again. I am God. Let me be God again to you. What a good word. I need that every morning in my devotions. Because I, I don't get up singing praises. I, it's like, okay, God, be my God again. And he's there. Let me be God to you again. I, let me, I think he's saying this to us, let me lift from your shoulders this morning, your fears and your future. And your burdens. And your disappointments. And your strivings. So be still and know. Stop. Acknowledge. Repent. Receive. It's right there. Very present help. And God follows this command with these promises. Look what he says here. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. For the sinner, for these nations, for the the sinner outside of God's grace, that's frightening news. God will be seen in His glory. His authority will be acknowledged. His righteous judgments will be executed. As Paul writes in Philippians 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But for the Christian, these guarantees of God's exaltation, they're not threats, they're promises of joy. For God to be exalted means that you will see Him in His beauty and His glory and His all-sufficiency. You will know Him fully in His love, however dim it might seem in your circumstances. That's what we were made for. To know Him fully in His love. For God to be exalted in your life means that, that His purposes of wisdom and love and mercy will be fully accomplished in your life. Isn't that good? He will be exalted in your life. He, for God to be exalted means he, you and I will be filled with joy and flooded with good. Filled with joy flooded with good. When we grasp that, you know what we will do? We will sing the chorus again. Verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I take my youngest son. That's become a refrain. I take him to school sometimes. And when he gets out of the car, remember Benjamin, Lord of hosts is with us. God of Jacob is our fortress. Okay, Dad. (laughs) I'm crying. He's... Okay. Thanks, Dad. Uh, It's true. You know, and as we sit here this morning, we have an even greater assurance and a deeper understanding even than the inspired psalmist. Because the trouble he imagines is external. Right? Oceans, mountains, armies. But there is a much greater trouble from which we must be saved. And that greater trouble is its God and His righteousness and His justice that must be executed if He's going to be a God worth worshiping. And the God who was with the psalmist drew nearer still in the person of Jesus Christ, whom the New Testament calls God with us. Emmanuel, right? <laughs> the Lord of hosts is Immanuel. He's with us. This is pointing to Jesus. And Jesus bore that greater trouble on the cross. He bore our sin. He absorbed God's wrath. He, ra- he, he, he removed all hostility. And so the metaphor changes for us. It moves from, a, from a, a castle, a refuge, to a cross. And so where do we run to now? Where do we hide to now? What do we wrap our arms around now? It's a, the cross has become our refuge. Saving us from the greatest trouble of all. And friends, because God has saved us from the greatest trouble, we can now come to Him in any trouble. Knowing he is with us, he will never forsake us. Few men knew this truth better than, or expressed it better than Martin Luther. In his, in his amazing life, in, in, in his fight for the gospel during the Reformation, Luther took on all comers the power of the Pope, the power of the Catholic Church, the power of the Holy Roman Empire itself, he faced physical threats. He faced death threats. He faced relational threats. He faced health threats. He faced church threats. And, and when the stress and the pressure and the trouble would become too severe and Martin Luther grew fearful and discouraged, he would sometimes say to his friend, Philip Melanchthon, one of the great theologians of the Reformation, he would say to him, Come, Philip. Come, Philip, let us sing number 46 and let them do their worst. <laughs> Come, Philip, let us sing 46. Are you, are you in trouble today? Are you fearful today? Come, let us sing 46. Let them, let the devil, let the world do their worst. Because God is with us. We are secure, whatever the trouble. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, God, your, your word, sometimes it's, it almost seems too good to be true. But because you've sent your son we know it's true we know your rescue we know your forgiveness we know your presence we know your nearness Lord you've you've dealt with cosmic trouble in the form of our sin and now Lord thank you that you are with us in any trouble thank you Father you are with us Oh, Lord, emblazon this on the souls of Grace Church. Every person here, Uh, Lord, and, and may every person here be given a new song to sing by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.